Good morning again. Thank you guys for leading us. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you'll open up your Bible to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7. We're still in the series, Meet Jesus, and what we've done for the series is just kind of put together a string of portraits of Jesus from the book of Luke and now the book of Acts, which are both written by Luke, by the same author. Uh, As a matter of fact, the opening of the book of Acts tells us, uh, as Luke is writing to the person, Theophilus, that he's prepared the original materials for, he says, in the first book, which he's referring to Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus, Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Uh, and so commentators like to point to that saying, he was saying that the first book was everything Jesus began to do and teach. And now the book of Acts, through his apostles, through the movement of the Holy Spirit, the explosion of the church in the ancient world, is what Jesus continued to do through his people, through his apostles. And so that's what we're going to pick up in the book of Acts. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'll be on page 914, 914 in the black Bibles that you see nearby. You can follow along with us there. It's Acts chapter 7. Uh, And as we've been looking at different portraits of Jesus, we've been seeing uh, people, Jesus speaking to different audiences and different kinds of people. And now we'll see sermons about Jesus to different kinds of people and different audiences And this one I'm calling Jesus for Nationalists. Jesus for Nationalists. He's confronting Jews who put their faith in their nation more than their God. And of course, it's interesting timing because we're in the middle of one of the craziest election cycles I can remember when uh, nationalism is kind of making a big resurgence in our country. So it's interesting to consider these issues. I'm not really trying to make any political statements uh, with this sermon other than Jesus wants all of our allegiance. Jesus is asking for our complete allegiance. It doesn't mean we abandon our country, our nation, our tribe. It just means we have to be more loyal to Jesus than anything else. And so part of the trick of the Christian life is working that out. What does it mean to be ultimately uh, uh, allegiant? How do you say that? I can't think of the uh, different parsing of that word. What does it ultimately look like to have an allegiance to Jesus rather than our nation? or an allegiance that's stronger to Jesus than our natural allegiance to nation and family and tribe. And as I said, these these natural things that are appropriate at some level, we have to have a stronger allegiance to Jesus. So we're going to be kind of challenged this morning. This has been difficult for me thinking through. Um, The definition I would give of nationalism is this, a strong patriotism that holds one's nation to be superior to others. And a lot of us are like, well, yeah, of course, right? And then, but it also implicitly assumes a kind of salvation through allegiance to nation. So that's the trick. That's the trouble. That's the kind of where we tip over into this is dangerous, right? It's one thing to say, yeah, I think I have the best nation on earth. I'm pretty proud of it. I like it. There's probably some healthy things about that, but we often tip into, and I find a sense of uh, security and salvation in that nation's superiority. And so Jesus is going to say, I want your allegiance. I want your hope. I want your trust to be in me rather than nation. So I'm going to back up here to give us some context in this section. We've got Stephen giving a sermon here. That's basically what this is. Stephen's giving a sermon to these Jews who are putting their faith in the nation. And I want to back up to chapter 6, verse uh, 8, to give you a little of the background here, okay? So Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So this doing great wonders and signs is supposed to remind us of Jesus, who did great wonders and signs as well. So Stephen was full of grace and power. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people. Just to kind of place Stephen where he is, 
He was one of the first deacons in the church. So these uh, Grecian widows were getting overlooked as the church began to grow. The apostles said, we need to keep preaching the gospel and devoting ourselves to prayer, so we will basically elect some uh, uh, assistants. We call them deacons. It just is the Greek word for assistant, for helper. And they'll help make sure the widows are being taken care of. But these guys, not only were they good at taking care of widows, but this guy could preach as well. And so here he is. Verse 9, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So he's preaching Jesus, and these Greek-oriented Jews are disputing with him. They're debating with Stephen as he preaches Jesus. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So basically, in debate terms, he was kicking their butt, right? That would be, the, I think, the technical debate term for that. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses, false witnesses. So Luke is telling us here, basically, they were wrongly accusing him, saying he did things that he didn't do. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So they're saying he's speaking against the holy place and the law. The holy place was the temple, right? Our place and our law, he's speaking against it. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Luke is saying they, they saw him look pretty innocent, right? They, they thought he actually looked righteous against these false accusations. Chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. I'm going to stop there. We're going to look at more of these Verses. I've got a total of like uh, 65 verses this morning, and I'm not going to read every single one, okay? My wife was like, no, you can't read all those. Okay, I'm not going to read every single verse. We're going to skip around a little bit and try to give you the big idea for what God is doing with this sermon. They're accusing him of wanting to basically burn down the law and the temple, and he's going to now give them an answer. So let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll give you the rest of the story. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that you would help us to hear it. Uh, Lord, I confess as a, as a follower of Jesus that I often drift, and I begin following other things, other places, other laws. pray that you'd help me to see that Jesus is the only real place of refuge for me. And I pray for those of us this morning that are questioning, that have doubts, that are not sure if they can trust Jesus, that are not sure if it's worth it to follow him and what he says when sometimes it doesn't seem pleasurable or good. Lord, we pray that you'd give us open minds. You would help us to consider, to be open to what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been following the news, you know there's a lot of tension between Russia and Ukraine. Have you all seen some of that in the news lately? Some scary stuff, some kind of rumblings of war, some battles, some skirmishes. Uh, Russia uh, is the former kind of dominant lead of the, the former Soviet Union, this communist regime that was a, a confederation of all these uh, nations together. Ukraine was a part of that, but now that those states have been broken up over the last 20 years, um, there's now kind of a resurgence of 
a longing for the old empire that Russia used to lead, and there's tension. Russia wanted to kind of take over or at least influence Ukraine. There's fighting back and forth. And so there's a lot of examples of nationalism in the stories that we see, uh, not just in our own country, but in stories about other countries and stories about Russia and stories about Ukraine. One of the things that they have done in former communist countries to regain a new identity is they've torn down the symbols of their old identity. They've torn down the symbols of their old identity. So in these formerly communist countries, they would have a lot of statues. It would be statues of Lenin or Stalin or these former communist leaders. And now those statues are being torn down in a lot of cities. Problem is, as Americans, we're like, yeah, communists fell. That's great. You know, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. It just seems like a very simple, obvious thing. We, we want to tear down those bad symbols. But for a lot of those people, they had jobs when communists were in charge, and now they don't. So for a lot of these people, they're mad about it. They're mad that their symbols are being torn down because they see security and salvation in those old symbols because they had food back then and they don't have food now. And so there's this tension and this fighting. There's allegiance to ideals. You know, people saying, no, you know, this other system, capitalism works better than communism. And the people are like, well, I don't see it working for me. You know, and so there's all kinds of tension taking place. I want to read a little uh, story that I found about one of these Ukrainian cities called Simeonovka, Simeonovka. In Simeonovka, their linen statue survived its initial removal. They took the linen statue down from the city square. It was lifted by a crane and carted off of Red Square. I wept, said Ivan Kovalenko. He was 69 years old, a retired engineer. He says this, the West said it could not defeat us with weapons, so it decided to destroy us from within with prostitution and democracy. That's his view of what's taking place. We're thinking, all right, the triumph of capitalism, everything's great, and these people are quite bitter. It says an outcry ensued, at least among the older people who remembered when Semyonovka had 15 thriving factories and 15,000 people. Most of the factories are shuttered, and the population has shrunk to around 9,000 people now. Did bringing down linen suddenly make their lives better? Statue lovers have asked bitterly. City Hall initially quieted the debate in April 2014 by erecting linen in a secluded spot. Then the issue came roaring back to life among, uh, along with memory laws. So there's laws they're making, memory laws. Sounds kind of creepy, right? They're making memory laws where they're trying to tear down symbols of the old regime so that they can have a new identity. I think part of the problem is they've torn down the old identity symbols. They don't have symbols of their new identity. They really don't even have a new identity, and I think that's part of the problem. And so here we see a tension where Stephen is preaching Jesus. And he's saying, really, our identity should be in Jesus. And the people fighting against him are saying, all I can hear you saying is you want to burn my city down. That's what they're hearing, right? And I think we need to recognize that when we say Jesus is your ultimate savior, people are going to hear us saying, I want to burn your village down. I want to burn everything down that gives you security. And I don't know that's necessarily what we're saying when we say Jesus is your security, but we need to recognize that sometimes that's what people hear. And there is a call, this tension, as I said, to make our ultimate allegiance to Jesus, even as we are situated in tribes and neighborhoods and families. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to hate your, your family and your brother and your mother and your sister. And I believe in context, that doesn't mean kill them, murder them. You know, it doesn't mean hate them like that. It means... You have to love Jesus more than anything else. But that's a hard thing for us to work out. So, so let's look at the text and see where Stephen takes us here. It's a difficult one. 
It's a hard thing for us to understand. I think the first thing that we need to see is that nationalism is often where we find our identity. Nationalism is often where we find our identity. And as I said, we want to be situated in our nation. We want to be situated in our families, in our people groups, in our hobbies, whatever it is, your job. That's fine as a secondary identity, but it shouldn't be your primary identity. Our primary identity as followers of Jesus should be in Jesus himself. So look again at verse 13. It says, they set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. This holy place and the law. So those are the two big symbols of their identity. The holy place, the temple, God set up in Israel and said, this is going to be the broadcasting center where you tell the world about who I am, the temple, and then the law. This is going to be where you demonstrate my holiness to the world. You're going to live in a different way and show people what I'm like. So it says, they were accusing him of blaspheming. Uh, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. Verse 14, they kind of repeat it, slightly different words. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So when Stephen says, trust Jesus, he's the one that the law has pointed to. He's the one that the temple has pointed to. They're hearing, he wants to burn our place down. So we just need to recognize that tension. As we proclaim Jesus, people are going to be defensive and they're going to feel threatened because they're going to feel like you're stripping away the thing that they find their identity in. And that's a very difficult uh, transition for us to go through. Um, That's why I I believe in Christian conversion, we often refer to it as a death and rebirth. When we follow Christ, there's a sense in which the old us dies. The old us dies and the new new us has life. So nationalism can become an identity. What are the things that are the symbols of place, and law that are identities for you and for me? What do you think? What are some of the symbols for your tribe, for your hobby, right? If you're a teacher, there's probably symbols that you're like, I'm a teacher, and this symbolizes who I am and what I believe in. If you're in the army, there are certain symbols of like, I'm a, I'm a soldier, and this is what I'm about, and there are symbols of that. Um, I'm, I'm a Texan, and so love welcoming those of you that are not from Texas into our great republic. We're glad to have you here. Um, there's one of the symbols that, that I've always enjoyed. This is the Texas-shaped tortilla chip. Any of you ever eaten a texas shape? Yeah, some of you, right? Yeah, those of you that are not from Texas, you should buy them at HEB and send them to your friends in these other states. I've heard that other states don't have tortilla chips in the shape of their state. Is that true? That's so bizarre. It's just crazy to me. So Texas has a unique shape to it, which I think lends to the ease of, of making it a symbol, right? It's kind of a hard not to recognize shape. And so it becomes a symbol. And we have Texas trucks and we have Texas beer and it becomes a whole like marketing symbol of us having pride in who we are as Texans, right? But what are other symbols in, in your life? What are symbols of identity that we take on? Another one might be diplomas. I have a picture here of the seal of Harvard. I don't know that we have anybody here that's graduated from Harvard, but A lot of people, if you have graduated from high school or if you've graduated from college, you might actually have your diploma up on display, right? Some of you might have done that as like a symbol of something you've accomplished. Like this is this is an identity for me. I've done something. I I um, achieved driver's education when I was 16, and I have the certificate on my wall in my office. I I feel like that was something really to be proud of. So that's if you want to see, it's on it for for real. It's on the wall in my office. 
I did uh, 16 hours of security guard training in St. Louis. That's also up there on the wall. So, you know, there's all kinds of things you can put on the wall. You can say, this shows who I am. I've achieved something here. I've, I've accomplished something. What are the symbols for you? I, wa- I want you to be thinking about this in your own life. I'm kind of trying to stir the pot here and get you thinking. Here's a symbol uh, for those of us that are Americans, the American flag. Many of you have fought for this symbol. Many of you say this symbolizes my love for my people and my family. As I said before, there's an appropriate sense in which we care deeply about the things that symbolize who we are. I'm not fighting against that. What I'm saying is that our, our greater allegiance should ultimately be to Jesus. We're citizens of the United States, yes, but really, in Philippians, it says we're citizens of heaven. That's our ultimate home. That's really where we belong. So it's, an, it's a sense of priority. It's a sense of order where we put Jesus first before everything else. So what are the different symbols? I know growing up, uh, I went to a small town that had a, a big football team. That was a symbol, right? It was a symbol of our strength because our teenage boys could you know, defeat other teenage boys in other towns, and we had a big stadium, and that was a big thing, right? Um, I remember I had a certain code, a certain law I lived by as a teenager as well. I was thinking back to kind of what was my, my place and my law as a kid. I think the law that I lived by as a teenager was um, get into some trouble, but not too much trouble. I think that was kind of the law that I lived by as a teenager. I don't know what it was for you. Um, maybe it was get into no trouble, or maybe it was get into as much trouble as possible. I tried to kind of split the difference there as I grew up, um, thinking that someday I would switch laws. As a teenager, I was under this law of kind of get into trouble, but not too much. And then as an adult, I would try to be better, right? And then Jesus just wrecked that for me and, and kind of took over my life as a young man. Um, brought me to a different law, brought me to a different place. So what is the symbol? What is the identity that tells you who you are? Stephen, in his sermon, and Jesus is inviting you to make him your place and him your law, making him your ultimate identity saying, this is who I am. I'm, I have union with Christ. I belong to Jesus. He's accomplished all these things that these symbols only point to. A real home. Jesus is my ultimate home. The idea of home is a, is a symbol that points to a reality of ultimate home, the book of Hebrews tells us, this promised land that we're all longing for, but we haven't made it to yet. So the next thing we want to see is the history of the nation. What Stephen's going to do is he's going to go back and he's going to explain the history of the nation, and he's going to show to them Yes, your symbols of nation are good, but they point to something better, right? And he's going to do that by explaining what their story is. And so I want to encourage you to follow the same pattern. As I said, I'm not going to read all 50 verses. I'm going to kind of skip through this and give you the highlights, but I really want to encourage you to go back and read this. This is one of the great New Testament sections of Scripture that summarizes the Old Testament for us. So those of you that are kind of trying to read your Bible, trying to understand what it says better, but you struggle to to put it all together, this is kind of a keystone passage. This is a passage in the New Testament that says, Jesus is the end point and the culmination of everything that happened in the past. Hebrews 11 is another passage like that. But let's look at this passage real quickly. As I said, we're going to kind of skip through it a little bit. So the high priest is questioning him and saying, are these things true? He's saying, Stephen, do you really want to burn our town down? And now Stephen gives this answer, which at first blush seems like kind of an indirect answer. Stephen says this, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran 
and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. What has he told us right there? He's told us that Abraham's relationship to God was not dependent on the place. So they're saying our identity is in our special place. We have Israel, we have the temple, and this gives us an identity. And he's saying, you know what? God appeared to Abraham before he lived in this place. God called Abraham, God showed grace to Abraham before he ever moved him here. And you know what? When he moved him here, he didn't even give him one foot of inheritance. He didn't, he didn't own in the, any of the land yet. And then he ends the story by saying, and God promised him, you know what? Your descendants, who I'm going to give you, by the way, they're going to wander and be in exile and live as slaves in this other land. So the question is, is our relationship with God, is the presence of God dependent on us being in the right place? Stephen is setting up right here. You, you don't have to be in a certain place for God to meet you. You don't have to be in the right place for God to meet you. Again, that's not, he's not saying, so now I'm going to burn down the temple. He, you know, he's not trying to destroy the temple. He's saying, God can meet you outside of the temple. Skip down now to verse 23 or verse 22. He's now going to talk about Moses. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. You recognize those words again? Moses was mighty in words and deeds, like Stephen was mighty in words and deeds, like Jesus was mighty in words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So now what kind of picture is Stephen painting for them? There's this other guy that led your people, that you all say you love and you want to follow Moses' traditions, he was also mighty in words and deeds just like Jesus. He also tried to save his people just like Jesus, and they didn't understand what he was doing. It, it gets worse as it goes on. Look down at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So he's going on now making these associations. This Moses was a redeemer, just like this Jesus I've been telling you about. And Moses prophesied that there would be another one like him that would come. He's trying to point from their history that this is the true point of your nation. Your nation all along was pointing to this Jesus who was to come. Skip down to verse 44 now. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern they had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, Solomon, who built a house for him. So now, finally, the place arrives. Solomon builds the house. Verse 48, 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Finally, at the end of the sermon, he gets to the point saying, okay, finally this guy way late in their history built the house, but God doesn't live in houses. That's not the only place that God can show up. God, God doesn't need a house to live in. He says, in quoting the prophet here, verse 49, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so here he is quoting Isaiah 66, saying, I don't need a house. Heaven is my house. The earth is my footstool. I, I made everything. You don't need to build a house for me to show up. And the history of God's people proves that. The house is a good thing. It's a nice thing. It's a place for God to broadcast who he is to the world. And that's what he did with his house. But the house isn't the only way for God to show up. And that's the point here that he's proving. He's proving through their own history that God was up to something different than what they maybe assumed or expected. I have an illustration of this that I, ho- I hope will help you. Um, Can anybody tell what that is? I have a picture of some dots, some splotches. Can anybody tell what those splotches are? Kind of hard to tell. This is a close-up of a pointillist painting. You ever heard of pointillism? So pointillism is where you make a painting with a bunch of little smudges of a paintbrush, right? George Surratt's a famous pointillist, and here's one of his famous paintings. So I was showing you a zoomed-in close-up of a few of the splotches on a tree, and you can't make any sense of it. But when you back up and look at the whole thing, you see the picture. That's what Stephen is helping them to do with their history. Sometimes when you're in the middle of something, you see it so close that you don't have any perspective. It's kind of what's going on with the Jews here. They don't really see what God is doing. They just see their little part. They see their point in history. They don't see that, oh, God is doing something bigger than I even realized. And that's my prayer for you and for me, that as we understand the scriptures, we'll we'll get that bigger view. We'll begin to see, oh, God is up to something even bigger than my little moment in history. God is doing something huge. Romans 8 is all about that. God is doing something so much bigger than us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that he has for us in Christ Jesus. No terror, no uh, economic disaster, no loss of the symbols of place and law that give us an identity, none of those things being stripped away can take the love that God has for us in Jesus. Our world is going through a lot of tumult and craziness and who knows you know, what things are going to be like in six months. Jesus is our hope. It's one of the great things that, that I get from the perspective of getting to visit with our partners in, in other countries. So two weeks ago, me and Pastor Stephen are visiting with believers in other countries, and you know what? They live under different symbols. They live in different nations. They have different places, different laws. And for them, just like for us, Jesus is their real refuge. Jesus is their ultimate place. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law for them. He is the one that they trust in. So my prayer for you is that you wouldn't, Just read random verses in the Bible, see some splotches, say, this book doesn't make any sense. But that you would start to read it in a way where you get the broad sweep of understanding that Jesus is the point of the history of the Jews. He is the point of this temple. He is the point of this law. Everything points to him. He's the direction everything's headed. Summary passages like Acts chapter 7 are helpful for doing that. Again, I would encourage you to go back and read it this week and 
pick out more highlights than I've even shown you, right? I've just tried to show you some of the highlights. There's, there's more there. As you read it more and more, you see themes. You see the connections from the Old Testament to Jesus. Hebrews 11 is another place that's really good like that. If you're trying to understand how the Old Testament connects to Jesus, it seems so different and what's going on to get the big picture and not just see the splotches, but to see the painting itself. Hebrews 11 is really helpful to show how Jesus is the fulfillment, the whole book of Hebrews for that fact. Galatians is helpful as well, showing that Abraham was living out this faith and this grace that we know now in Jesus. Something else I would encourage is uh, when you read your Old Testament, um, reading the stories in order. Um, Genesis and Exodus are great. They're right there at the beginning and they go in order. But then after that, the story and the order gets a little confusing. The way our Bible is arranged, and I'm not saying that this is bad, but I'm saying this can be hard to understand sometimes, is it's arranged like a library. And so you've got um, history books, and then you've got law books, and then you have prophecy books, and you have wisdom books. And then the New Testament, kind of the same thing again. You have, you have like history books with the Gospels and Acts, and then you have letters. And so it's arranged by type of book. It's not arranged in order. I mean, some of it accidentally is in order, but it's not every bit in order. There's some really helpful tools called chronological Bibles. I'd, I'd really encourage you to invest in one of those if you're one of those people trying to study the Bible, trying to understand this flow, but it doesn't seem to go together for you. Chronological Bibles are really helpful. There's a particular brand I like a lot called the Daily Bible, but there's others. I think there's two or three now just called Chronological Bibles. Uh, The Grace Bible Church reading plan that we've put together for you is kind of a hybrid where you read Old and New Testament a little bit, but we put the story in order. So you follow the story the whole time in order. We don't violate the order of the story, but then we'll intersperse the poetical parts and the the letters from the New Testament to kind of help you make sense of it along the way. But I would really recommend that as a way of moving past just splotches to seeing the big picture. Jesus is the point, and there's a point beyond just the place and the law that God was taking them. He's trying to take them beyond that immediate identity that they had there. The last thing we want to see is then the hope that he gives to these nationalists. He gives them hope. Again, he's been trying to point them the whole way beyond themselves beyond their symbols to Jesus, the thing they point to. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So he's saying there was a righteous one. There was one who actually fulfilled the law. There was one who said, I am the place where God meets people. He fulfilled the role of the temple, and you murdered him. Now, this was kind of interesting for me to analyze because I'm a preacher, and I get to train preachers sometimes. I generally encourage preachers uh, to be nice and build a bridge with their audience, right? Um, So he's using some pretty harsh words here, but I don't want to judge him too harshly because I've never preached in a situation where I was about to get killed, right? So I'm thinking I would probably speak differently if y'all were all holding rocks about to kill me, right? I might be a little more bold even if you were about to kill me. Here, he's saying, you know what? The one thing that's been consistent throughout the history of Israel is they've always rejected God. They've always rejected his salvation. They've always turned from him. They've always been sinners. They've always seen these saviors like, Moses, and they've said, oh, who made you a judge and ruler over us? There's always been this tension. And he's saying, you're just playing out the same problem that's always been there. 
It's always been a sin problem. You're not a special people because you're Jews. We become special people by God showing his grace to us. That's true for the Jews just as it is for us today. We're not a special people because we're gathered in this building. We're special because of God's love towards us. I want to read this passage that I read to you last week because I think, again, it applies perfectly here. It's Deuteronomy 7, 7. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So he's saying, God didn't love you and choose you because you were a big, impressive tribe. You were actually small and puny. You were actually weak. He goes on and says, It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The Lord loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're so awesome and so impressive, because your tribe is the best tribe, because your symbols are the best symbols, because your nation is the best nation. That's hard for some of us Texans to believe. But, but the reality is God doesn't love us because of Texas. God, God loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he's gracious, because that's who God is. So our, our hope, our place, our law, our code, our symbols, our identity are rooted in the character of God himself. His adopting love towards us is what gives us an identity. It's what gives us a hope. And that's what Stephen is trying to steer them towards here. Again, he's not saying, now go burn your city down. He's saying, come to me, trust me. He's saying, don't, don't go destroy all the symbols that you've been trusting. And he's saying, trust me. And then we'll work out how you can live in the midst of those symbols. We'll work out how you can be a good citizen in this world. But remember, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Trust me first. I'm your only hope. So there's all these alternative refuges for us to run to in this world. Our jobs, our tribes, our hobbies, our people. The God of the Bible says again and again, don't trust in chariots and horses, but trust in the Lord your God. He's saying, trust in me. And remember, I didn't love you because you were so lovable. I loved you because I loved you. That's, that's God's reason, his own love. And that's where we find our hope. There's a uh, picture I found here of an arrow sign. When I was uh, working at a teen center, we had one of these arrow signs. Have any of you ever worked with these where you have like a marquee and you put signs up? Y'all ever done that before? Some of you? Okay. Yeah, it's a horrible job. They always fall off. It's really frustrating. But when we had this business, the arrow sign would tell people messages and they would point people to the business, right? We were trying to get people to come in to the business, Sometimes what happens is God gives us these symbols that point us to him, and we just want to gather around the symbol. And that's what happened with the nation of Israel. He gave them this place, and the place was to point people to him. He gave them the law, and the law was to point people to him. And then they made the place and the law everything. They made their identity in these external things, in these signs, instead of realizing, no, the signs are supposed to point us to him. So when Jesus came, when God came in the flesh, they, they missed it. They didn't recognize it because they were saying, no, all our hope is in this place and all our hope is in this law. And they missed the love that God had for them. Christ is the new temple. John 2, if you like to take notes, is a really helpful little verse that makes it clear that, that Jesus is the ultimate place. He is the temple. He is the real holy place where God meets humanity. At John 2.18, uh, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John says. So Jesus says, I'm the real temple. I'm the real, t- real temple. If you, if you tear me down as the ultimate temple, I'll be raised in three days. We also know that Christ is the ultimate end of the law. So they're worried about place and law. Jesus is the place. Jesus is also the end of the law. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Stephen, in his sermon, said it this way, he is the righteous one. There was actually one Jew that was completely righteous that actually fulfilled the law, and you murdered him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the place that we're all longing for. Jesus is fulfillment of the law that none of us can keep. He is our hope. And Stephen and me, the author Luke, we're pointing ourselves to Jesus so that we would loosen our grip on the symbols that we've been putting our hope in so that we can grip on to the reality of who Jesus is. It's fascinating here. The the sermon doesn't go well. Um, It ends badly. If you go on, let's not get used to these glasses here. If you go on to the rest of the story here, he says, you murdered the righteous one. And then in verse 53, it says, you who received the laws delivered by angels did not keep it. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Uh, That means literally they threw big rocks at him and killed him. They stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our introduction to Saul. Verse 59 says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's a nice way of saying he died, right? His last sermon, his last prayer was, Jesus is your only hope. He sees this vision of Jesus as he's getting killed. He says, God, forgive them. God, forgive them. And who's there? This last sermon, who's there? Saul, the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. Saul becomes Paul. He converts, changes his name, and he becomes this great evangelist that really the rest of the book of Acts is about Paul now. Saul turned into Paul. It's really interesting. It was comforting to me in a weird way. I know a preacher getting killed shouldn't be comforting to me as a preacher, but it was comforting to me as a preacher to recognize that Stephen preaches this sermon that literally turns the world upside down. He doesn't get to see the effects. He doesn't get to see concrete change take place. Because I don't know about you, but like it's really hard for me to stay committed to something when I don't see radical results. I want to see results now, right? When I preach like, my preference would be every Sunday at noon, y'all run out the door, you know, and you turn clean upside down because you're so excited about Jesus and you just love everyone and you set the world uh, upside down with your radical love. Now, some of that's happening. I get to hear these stories of what you're doing in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and it's happening, but it's happening kind of slowly and normally. I don't know about you, but I think this encourages us to speak the truth regardless of how immediate the results are. 
Stephen did a great job of pointing people to Jesus, and then he got killed. He gets to see any of it. The question is, am I and are you going to testify to what you know about Jesus, whether or not you see results? When you talk to your brother or your sister about Jesus, and they don't change right then, do you give up? Do you keep praying for him? Do you keep talking to him about Jesus? When you try to encourage your neighbor to love them, to help them, to serve them, and you don't see some kind of radical conversion, do you just give up and say, well, I guess there's no point in talking about Jesus then? Or do you continue to talk about this Jesus who is the hope of the world? Christianity is now the largest religion in the world. The guy that was approving of his death was converted and became a Christian right after that. That's where the rest of this book is going, but Stephen didn't see it. But Stephen did see Jesus. So that's what I want to leave you with, that if we see Jesus as clearly as Stephen sees Jesus, we're not going to be so concerned about immediate results. We're just going to proclaim the truth. We're going to say, there's Jesus. He's awesome. Look at him. Look at him. Do you see him? Do you see how great he is? We're going to want to share that with other people. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond and worship together. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in Jesus. We thank you for the hope that you give us in him. We thank you that he is the place where we meet you. We thank you that he is the fulfillment of the law. We thank you that he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and that he rose from the dead to give us life. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to see that, that Jesus is the real place, that Jesus is the real law, that Jesus is our hope and our ultimate identity. I pray that you would grow in us that same kind of confidence that Stephen had, that radical confidence, that radical ability to see Jesus in the midst of a world that seems to be turned upside down. I pray that you would help us, like the psalmist says, to see that you are our ultimate refuge. You're our ultimate hope. God, help us to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.